Good morning. Our text today stands between the raising of Lazarus and the journey to the cross. Uh, indeed, it, it actually recounts a stopover that Jesus and the disciples took uh, on their journey to Jerusalem. And that means that the wonder and hope that was seen in the resurrection of Lazarus exists despite the growing shadow of the cross and will exist, of course, beyond the cross and into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so as we read these verses, we do so with death and resurrection, the themes on either side of this passage. Now this morning, uh, I thought it'd be good for us to, to focus on the two characters that Jesus interacts with, uh, the woman and the thief. Uh, in this short text, they contrast each other with two entirely polarised views on Jesus. Uh, they show radically different attitudes. They uh, commit themselves to live uh, very different lives. And they have two very different outcomes. And in both, we have in microcosm that theme of belief and rejection that has been so dominant throughout the gospel to this point. So, uh, verse 1 sets the scene for what will follow when it says this, uh, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, when we read those words, six days before the Passover, it acts as something of a sombre countdown. Uh, for those of us who know this story, we know the significance of that statement. It means that there are six full days left before Jesus is to die. This is the last Sabbath before the crucifixion. Time is running out. Of course, it's not just us, uh, the later readers, who know what is going to come. Jesus knows that his death is imminent. Even now, as he and his disciples head to Jerusalem, Jesus knows that in just a few days he will be arrested and handed over to the authorities. He will be beaten and flogged, crucified, and three days later rise from the dead. Jesus has all of that ahead of him, and he knows full well. And we know that because he keeps telling the disciples. Even a few verses later, in this chapter, uh, he will remind them that as they go to Jerusalem, this is what is to happen. Of course, the disciples cannot take it in. Uh, they just cannot get it. Uh, after all, it is the very opposite of what they are expecting. It goes far outwith anything that they are thinking. They cannot see how the kingdom of God could come if Jesus is killed. Yet this is what Jesus keeps telling them, warning them, that this is what is going to occur. So on their journey, they stop at Bethany, where Jesus has some good friends in Lazarus and his two sisters. His journey to Bethany, this, this return, comes at a crucial point and it allows almost a, a moment of farewell. And so whilst there is a dinner uh, given in Jesus' honour, uh, we see the family settle into their habitual roles. So Martha, she serves, uh, Lazarus, he's eating, and Mary grasps what really matters. As such, she enters, carrying half a litre of spectacularly uh, expensive perfume. Now, as we read on, we actually discover how expensive it was, and it is a lot, uh, but especially for women. 
Uh, bear in mind that the spending power that women had at that point was uh, far less than men and far, far less than women today. So therefore, what she brings has an almost unimaginable value to it. And as we read on in verse 3, Mary therefore took this pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now I'll return to the significance of this in a moment because it's not just about the expense of what she does. Uh, However, having presented the woman, the text then pivots to the second character. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help uh, himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you. Uh, but you do not always have me. So here we have uh, these two people, the woman and the thief. Uh, The two people who have very different attitudes towards Christ in this moment. Uh, The woman, Mary, uh, is doing something staggerously generous when we think about it. I mean, what she does is incredible. Uh, She uses up something that was worth a year's wages, the 300. Uh, But that's a a year's wages for a man, bear in mind, who had the opportunity to earn a year's wages. She did not even have the opportunity to earn such an amount over a year. Which then compels us to ask, why did she do it? Well, uh, essentially there are two reasons. And uh, the first is that she is simply struck with the spectacular value of Jesus Christ. She recognises that value and as a result uh, she gives this expensive perfume and sees it as no loss. Instead, she gains, uh, for she will go away from this encounter feeling better than if she had kept the expensive ointment to herself. Uh, She values Jesus so much that uh, giving it away, uh, giving away her most treasured possession was no loss at all. In fact, I believe that if she had more, she would have given it. This is how much she values Jesus. This is how wonderful she considers him to be. This is how much she thought he was worth. And so what she has, she gives. So she enters into the room uh, without great fuss. Uh, She does not attempt to hang on to what she has, but willingly pours it out. And as she does so, she she recognises That she's not diminished or impoverished, but that she gains. So the first reason that she does this is because she values Jesus so highly. The second reason explains why she valued him so highly. You see, she recognised what he was going to do. She realised that Jesus was the saviour. The saviour who would save her and anyone else who came to him for salvation. And this saviour was not going to save by issuing some words like, I forgive you. Uh, He wasn't going to simply, you know, perform some sort of ritual. He was going to achieve this. He was going to be able to give this because he was going to die. Dying in the place that I was actually reserved for others. Uh, Dying in order to bear the penalty of sin. Now, remember what we read in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it. For the day of my burial. And in that single statement, he wipes away any imagined scandal of a woman entering the feast and anointing him. Uh, for it was the job of the woman to anoint the body of the deceased. 
However, it's still a strange phrase, um, not least because she's used up all the perfume and has nothing to be kept for a later day. Uh, the idea here is that she gets to keep the treasured memory of what she has done now, uh, as there would not be time to carry out the usual burial rituals when he died. Uh, this is the sense that's conveyed in the similar accounts in Matthew and Mark. In those texts, Jesus makes it very clear uh, that this anointing was in place of uh, the anointing that would normally take place at his burial. That's why the, the Greek text uh, uh, that we have here in John would probably be better rendered, uh, leave her alone, because she has kept it for the day of my burial anointing. Now, by saying this, by calling it uh, the day of my uh, burial anointing, Jesus shows, well, how imminent his, his death is, uh, and he warns them that there's a reason that the anointing day has to be done almost a week early. If you're familiar with the story, you will know that when Jesus died, there was something of a rush to bury him. Uh, because of the holy day that was to begin imminently, uh, two men, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, wrap him up um, uh, with some spices added to the linen and hastily place him in a tomb that is borrowed from Joseph. It's not until Sunday uh, that the women then come to anoint the body. Uh, yet because of the resurrection, the women are far too late. When they arrive with their perfumes and spices to hand, they discover that he is risen. It, it was, of course, um, important uh, at that time to anoint the body. Uh, it was customary that when someone was buried, they would be laid in the tomb. Now, in that tomb, there would be a, a shelf cut into the, the rock that was there, and the body would be placed there. And they'd be left there for about a year. After that time, uh, what was left, the, the, the bones, would be collected and placed in a sarcophagus, uh, that is a, a box, uh, with that very purpose in mind. Uh, that's why the Old Testament describes this practice as uh, laying the bones to rest. Uh, for example, the, the children of Israel are described as laying the bones of Joseph to rest in uh, Joshua 24 verse 32. Uh, later on, the bones of others, like Saul in 1 Samuel 31-13, uh, are said to have been collected and put to rest. Uh, often, uh, the bones would also be put to rest uh, in the same box that housed the bones of previous generations. Uh, and that was a practice that is described as uh, resting or sleeping with the fathers. However, uh, whilst all of that was quite commonplace... Uh, to use this incredibly expensive perfume that Mary poured out with abandon uh, was usually reserved for the bodies of kings or great leaders, uh, perhaps uh, someone of uh, great sig uh, significance nationally. It was a sign of devotion and respect and honour, all of which means that Mary has got it. She has understood who he is, understood that he is going to do something for her and for others so momentous that it has to be recognised. Even before he is dead, she anoints him. And that use of the word anoint, it goes beyond simply what she does. It tells us that she understands. You see, she gives that huge amount because she values him highly, and she values him highly because she gets what he is going to do. She gets it. She gets it that, that, that he loves her and others so much that he will give his life for them. Ah, give his life for us. So we do not need to be separate from God forever. He paid the price. So even though uh, the religious and uh, civil leaders will reject 
this king. She knew that this was a king who was not going to say, lay down your life for me, which is the norm. Rather, he was going to lay down his life for her. And so she acts out of gratitude. She acts out of love. All of which takes us to the second character, the thief. You see, whilst the other Gospels uh, tell us that there were a number of people who were perturbed at what they think was a, a great waste, John wants to boil it down to the two people. Uh, it allows it to make it much more stark, much more applicable. These are the two people Jesus directly interacts with. But you know, it, it really pulls you up short when you read about this. I mean, when you think about it. I mean, Judas was a disciple. He was one of the twelve. He had lived and travelled with Jesus for three years. He has seen the miracles. He's heard the teaching. How much closer could you get to Jesus? How much more could you be identified with him, known as a follower of his? And yet in his heart, you would have to say he hated Jesus and what he stands for. Everything that Jesus has done, and more importantly, everything that he's going to do, it means not a thing to Judas. As we see here, the only thing that mattered to him was money. What Jesus was about, why it was so important, who he was, what he was going to do, all of that meant nothing. The Saviour meant nothing. His eyes are firmly fixed on the bag of money. And Judas wants it for himself. Everything about Jesus' ministry for, uh, that, that had uh, prompted Mary to give everything out of love. Well, everything about Jesus' ministry for Judas prompted him to try and get, to ask, what is in it for me? So one of the characters totally gets it about Jesus. Uh, the other couldn't care less. In fact, Judas will go on to betray Jesus. Uh, betray him. For money, for 30 pieces of silver. After everything, after every parable, every teaching, every miraculous sign, even seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, Judas wanted money. And what the money could get him. And so he hated Jesus, he opposes Jesus. He's not going to live like the woman. He's not going to be like Mary, who freely gave in response to Jesus, freely giving himself. All Judas was interested in was what he was going to get. Now, having seen these characters, uh, looked at the woman and the thief, we need to ask, where are we? Uh, you, You see, what we have here with Mary and Judas, well, they're two extremes. It is unlikely that any of us would look at Mary and think, yep, I'm just like her. (laughs) Equally, it's unlikely that we will look at Judas and say, I'm like him. Uh, If we're entirely honest with ourselves, it may be that over the course of our life, we veer towards one or, or, or veer towards the other. Perhaps if we look at ourselves, we will realize that in our hearts, we're a bit of a mixture. We can look at Mary and see bits of her inside of ourselves. But if we look closely, we'll see that there are bits of Judas within us too. One of them went away from this encounter affirmed by Christ. She left following Jesus, delighted to have given to the one who would give everything. 
The other went away from this encounter with nothing, uh, well, nothing but a rebuke and the exposure of what was in his heart. Judas is a man who walks away, a man who betrays Jesus, and a man who in the end is crushed under the weight of who he is and what he has done, to the extent that he will take his life. Life cannot be lived as if Jesus did not exist. And so the question is, what are we going to do about it? Will we be like Mary and live like Mary, or be like Judas and live that way? One leads to eternal life, the other is the way of eternal separation from God. One leads to a material loss, but what a gain, what a personal gain. The other leads to, well, material gain, but personal bankruptcy. And we are given the choice, which one will we be? Which one will we strive after? Consider there's a mixture in our hearts. Which one are we going to allow to have dominance? You see, When we read these texts, we can mistakenly allow ourselves to take on the role of the observer. You know, it's safe to just kind of look at this text at a distance, uh, to make the story about Mary or about Judas. However, we are not given these accounts so we can have some nice stories. John wrote this down because it's about Jesus. And it's what we then have the opportunity to believe. He wrote the book so people would believe. When we read texts like this, we are being presented with a choice. That is why they are written. When we read about the woman and the thief, we do so at the end of 11 chapters where the themes of belief and rejection have been consistently and constantly presented. Everything that John has written to this point is about Jesus as the Messiah. And then the choice to believe. It was a choice that was given to the original hearers, but it's also a choice that is given to us, the readers, to believe or not. In other words, we have here, in the example of Mary and the warning of Judas, here, in this text, we have this opportunity to believe now. Not like Judas, simply associated with Jesus, uh, content to have that label of follower, But in your heart, to believe like Mary, to value, to follow Jesus, even if in our hearts we wrestle because we are a mixture of the two. That is the message of this text. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Thank you.